Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Kent Whipple. And then my mom told me we were moving to Oklahoma. I said, I refuse to move to a state named after a fucking musical. That and more. But before that, I just wanted to say, you know, if you haven't already bought the Risk book, you have such a treat waiting in store for you. It is 37 amazing stories, most of them all-time classics from the podcast that have been rewritten for the page, but six are brand new. They've never appeared anywhere else. Plus, there's an introduction by me and Q&As with all the authors like Michael Ian Black and Aisha Tyler, Dan Savage, Lily Taylor, Mark Marin, and many more. You know, J.C. Cassis is the producer of Risk, and Her mother had the most interesting experience with the Risk book, which I think says a lot. Uh, JC's mom is, I think, in her 70s. Uh, She's from England. Very sweet lady. Very buttoned up. You know, very proper kind of person. So she'd never heard the podcast, but she knew it had a reputation for being loaded, as we say. Uh, She was worried that if she bought the Risk book, she might find it too emotional or even too X-rated for her taste. But she bought it and she read it. Now, indeed, she did find some of the stories rather intense, but she found other stories really moving and some of them really fascinating. So at first she said she wasn't sure if she would share this book with anyone because of those stories that were kind of, you know, outside her comfort zone at first. But those stories really stuck with her and got her thinking. So finally she did share it with one friend, right? And then that got the two of them talking about all kinds of things based on what the stories had them feeling. Well, she ended up buying this damn book for like 10 different people. (laughs) She's totally come around. You know, she came to the risk book reading that we had at NYU bookstore last week. And she texted JC afterwards to say how proud she is and how she feels that sharing such honest stories, even if some are challenging to encounter at first, really is great work. It's funny, I have a handful of friends or family members who, for whatever reason, they're just not podcast people, you know? So they've never gotten around to checking out the show. But now they're reading the book, And they're fascinated by all this uncensored, soul-searching kind of storytelling that no one quite captures like Risk does. So now I'm telling them, look, 
The holidays are coming. The Risk Book is a very affordable gift for lots of people on your list, I'm sure. It's got such a remarkable variety of stories in it. There really is something for everyone to find interesting or really moving or laugh out loud funny in it. So even if you have bought the Risk Book, please buy more as gifts. Don't forget it's available in paperback and audiobook and ebook. And if you like it, leave a review on Amazon. We've got five stars there right now and 255 reviews so far. So there's the proof. People are loving it. So you can find The Risk Book wherever books are sold or at theriskbook.com. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is kamasi washington behind me now and we are calling this week's episode stunning because among other things i just think it's a stunning episode you know there was a an article in Mashable.com last week of 15 storytelling podcasts that they consider the very best, and we weren't included on that list. Now, that's not the fault of the author. You know, we're, we're not on a lot of people's radar because we're such an indie sort of show. We're not a part of a big network or, you know, podcasting media company or anything like that. So... A lot of times I'll see these lists of the best podcasts, this, that, or the other, and we won't be included on them because a lot of journalists out there just aren't even aware of Risk's existence. So you know what I did? We have a group called the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook. You should go become a member because it's a super fun place where fans of the show discuss all sorts of things related to Risk. But I posted there a list of 10 episodes from 2018 alone that I feel journalists should know about. So I, I, I did little synopses of the 10 episodes of 2018 so far that I think everyone should know about. So I posted it there at the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group and told people, hey, cut and paste this. Send it to your favorite magazines or online sites or blogs or even social media influencers or even just your friends to say, hey, look at these synopses of these 10 amazing episodes. You've got to check this podcast out. Anyway, the list is already incomplete because Today's episode, this one I'm calling Stunning, should already be on that list. It should be a list of 11. These two storytellers were stunned in very different ways in their stories. This is a classic example of risk going from comedy to tragedy in this week's episode. We're going to start with the hilarious Kent Whipple. You should look him up on Facebook at Kent Storyteller. He told this at our most recent live show that we did in Seattle just a couple weeks ago, and he calls it Furry or Foe. Thank you. 
Good evening. I hate Oklahoma City. And uh, much like my ex, Oklahoma City hates me. But my folks live there. Um, Bernie and Sherry. So I have to go visit them. Now, Make America Great bumper stickers and hats are really popular in Oklahoma City. So is Jesus, the Bible, and football. Um, I like liberal cities. I'm more used to progressive cities. That's why I love Seattle. I mean, we passed uh, marriage equality and legal weed at the same time. <laughs> you know, we know our Bible too here. If a man lies with a man, he shall be stoned. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Take that, Oklahoma City. Well, the summer of my senior year, my mom met Bernie right before my senior year, so we had to move to Oklahoma City. I hated it. I didn't want to move. I was really happy in Albuquerque. I was this little gay Buddhist punk rock boy. I had a safety pin in my ear and a lightning bolt bleached in my hair because I had hair back then. And I wore this little kind of punk rock uniform. On MTV, all the cool guys had eyeliner, so I had black eyeliner, and I wore army pants and a hospital scrub shirt, and I had a bunch of uh, sunglasses. And my favorite pair that kind of hit all the eyeliner was uh, this band that looked like something that Geordie wears on Star Trek The Next Generation. Well, I loved it. I was proud and out in Albuquerque. And then my mom told me we were moving to Oklahoma. I was pissed. I said, I refuse to move to a state named after a fucking musical. <laughs> the whole drive there, I, I, I just ignored her. I, I didn't even speak to her. I mean, we left the freedom of the beautiful, arid uh, mountains of Albuquerque for the flat red dirt of Oklahoma, where oppression hung in the air, much like the ever-present humidity. And they have a lot of churches in Oklahoma. They have churches everywhere. They have churches on every block, much like we have Starbucks here. Right near my new home was a business called the Jesus is Lord Pawn Shop. And it, it had a sign that says, Live ammo sold here. <laughs> this was my new home. I was a stranger in a strange land. And high school, high school in Oklahoma City sucked. It didn't help that I wore my punk rock uniform every day as a fuck you to all the conservatives. But every day, I'd get called a fag or a queer, or a homo. Football, the captain of the football team, you know, it would be indiscreet for me to say his name. His name is Devin, Devin O'Brien. <laughs> Devin and his big, beefy jock friends, they'd always say things like, I'm gonna beat the shit out of you. Now, I know I'm not the butchest bulb in the box, but come on. And, and when... I wasn't being threatened to be beat up. The, the very sweet, kind kids, they were always trying to convert me. And apparently, the minute I moved into Oklahoma, my name became two syllables and had an I in it. They'd say things, can't. It just makes me so sad that someone as sweet as you's gonna burn in hell forever. <laughs> How do you respond to that? <laughs> well, I might add that Devin, Devin O'Brien, asked me for a blowjob at a graduation party. I know, he didn't get it. As soon as I could, I booked it out of Oklahoma. And uh, I traveled around to a bunch of progressive cities till I landed here in beautiful Seattle. But Every year, I have to go back to visit my parents because they're old. They can't travel here. And it makes me a nervous wreck. Um, partially because it's a family visit, and you know how fun those are. And 
partially because it's the Christian Twilight Zone. <laughs> the minute the landing gear starts coming down, all of my teenage insecurities pop right back up. Well, the last time I was there, my mom and Bernie have a neighbor now who's there all the time. She's a very sweet old lady named Miss Minnie, and she's straight out of central casting. She's about this tall, um, bun in her hair, cat-eye glasses, and she keeps a tissue right here in her house coat. Well, she's there all the time because her husband died. Or as she likes to say, he passed on to our Lord God, Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, Miss Minnie is always interrogating me. She's like, Ken, how can you be Buddhist when you ain't Chinese? <laughs> or, or my favorite one, Ken, when you gonna settle down and meet a nice girl and get married? My mom got really mad at me when I asked a very confused Miss Minnie the same question. <laughs> well, the last time I was there, I was a nervous wreck. My stepdad likes to watch Fox News. Miss Minnie's interrogating me. So I asked my mom if I can borrow her car. Now, this thing is like a 1990 Cutlass, it might even be like an 80s Cutlass Supreme. It's huge. It's like an aircraft carrier. It gets like a quarter mile to the gallon. Well, I asked if I could borrow her car uh, to go see a movie. She said, yeah. So I'm in the car, and I decide to get stoned. I brought a joint with me from here. Now, don't judge me. I'm going to guess some of you did the same thing tonight. So... I'm, I get high, I'm starting to relax, get my movie groove on. I roll down the windows and air out the aircraft carrier. <laughs> and in the rearview mirror, I see red and blue lights of an Oklahoma highway patrol car. I mean, the movie theater's just like a block away. And by the time I heard the siren, my heart was in my throat and I was high. Well, I pull over, looking in the rearview mirror, and I see the patrolman get out. And this dude is huge. And you know how um, the rear mirrors have things may appear larger than they are in life? Well, in my stone mind, he was huge. He was a giant. He was like a cleaned up version of Hagrid from Harry Potter. And he's walking over to me, and, and on his belt, I could see um, his gun and his nightstick. And I think, I am fucked. So I roll down the window, very calmly, say, what seems to be the problem, officer? And he says, sir, I am not an officer. I am a patrolman. <laughs> Who knew there was a difference? I mean, and Stone can't just figure patrolmen are like seven feet tall and 400 pounds of muscle. And I'm, so he says to me, sir, could you please give me your license and registration and step out of the vehicle? This is getting formal, not car, vehicle. And I think, oh, fuck, the feds are going to impound my parents' antique car. I'm going to go to jail and I'm going to end up being a bitch boy to some white supremacist named Bubba. And I'm getting higher. So he walks back to his car, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to become attracted to people on Duck Dynasty. And what seems to be forever, or, or at least a change of seasons, he finally gets out of the car, and I'm getting higher and higher. <laughs> Do you remember those ABC school after-school specials when the kids did drugs and they showed the, their perspective with a fishbowl lens? It was all kind of wonky and weird. Well, that was my life at that moment. 
And he's getting out of the car and out of the back seat jumps out a guy in a giant yellow cat suit. And I'm like, fuck, I am high. And all of a sudden, you know, this cat suit dude, he's in a big yellow furry outfit with a big red bow tie and and a blue uh, vest and this big giant head with these big googly eyes. And he was a cat furry. And I thought, fuck, I've got to ignore this. Because that seemed like the most logical thing to do at the time. And so... They both start walking over in that fishbowl lens kind of way. Big giant officer here, cat dude here. And I just keep my eye on the officer. Because, you know, I don't want them to know I'm a hippie stoner fag criminal. And by then cat guy, he starts getting, he's noticing I'm ignoring him. So he's like wiggling his big yellow butt at me and waving his big giant paw at me. And I thought, fuck. Well, they both get over to me. Did you know at certain moments of stress, you can actually hear your own heartbeat? <laughs> While I'm sitting there, I am shaking like a bouncy house filled with 60 kindergartners. And, and the, the patrolman, he hands me back my license and my insurance and a $20 bill. So I'm sitting there and he says, can't whipple. On behalf of the Oklahoma Highway Patrol and Cat Radio, we want to give you $20 for wearing your seatbelt. All of a sudden, there's this photographer there. I don't know where the fuck he came from. And they're taking pictures, and I'm shaking hands with the dude in the cat suit, and we're arm in arm with the big giant patrolman. And then all of a sudden, boom, they were gone. Probably to go harass another stoner. And there I was, sitting in my parents' antique car, getting paid to commit a crime in front of a church. Thank you. What's new, Pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. What's new, Pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. Pussycat, Pussycat, I've got flowers and lots of hours to spend with you. So go and bother your cute little Pussycat nose. Pussycat, pussycat, I love you Yes, I do You and your pussycat nose What's new, pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa What's new, pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa This is Risk This is, of course, Tom Jones And we just heard from Kent Whipple. Now I want to tell you about Nutrafol. Nutrafol is a new safe and effective strategy to help you take control of your hair health. It's made with 100% drug-free nutraceutical ingredients clinically shown to improve thinning hair. It's recommended by over 850 top physicians and some of the top salons in the country. There are numerous causes for hair loss, menopause, postpartum, issues with sleep. Nutrafol can help. Ashwagandha, which is found in Nutrafol, is a stress adaptogen that can help protect the hair from negative effects of cortisol. It reduces the body's response to stress, helping you with depression and anxiety, as well as hair health. Nutrafol's formula nourishes the hair from within, and since it's made from medical-grade botanical ingredients, there are no bad side effects or compromises to overall wellness. Nutrafol is available in two distinct formulas for men and women to suit your specific metabolic needs. Go to Nutrafol.com to learn more. 
To get your first month's supply with subscription for $10, visit N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com and use the promo code RISK during the checkout. That's Nutrafol.com. The offer code is RISK for your first month supply for $10 with your subscription. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from one of our favorite storytellers, Sarah Long Hendershot. She has shared several classic stories with us over the years, and here is another. As I said at the top of the show, we started with comedy, and now we're going to much darker material. There's violence in this story. So here she is now. This is Sarah Long Hendershot with a story we call The Girl on the Hill. You and your pussycat lips You and your pussycat eyes You and your pussycat nose There's a wild, dark river that cuts and winds its way through the small city of Watertown, New York. I was just out of high school, and I was in love with that river. I would stand up on the Court Street Bridge and look down on it, and I was mesmerized by the motion of the water folding in on itself and the fractured reflections of the sky and the trees that were always moving across the surface of the water. There was something about the roar of that water hitting itself and the rocks and the shore that I found really soothing. And it would throw up these little droplets of water that would cling to my skin, and I would think, that's actual little pieces of that raging river down there. It made me feel like I was part of it somehow. I would even go there in the winter, and the trees and the shore would be encased in snow and ice. But nothing stopped that river. It never froze. And it looked really beautiful from up on that bridge, but the Black River is savage. More than 50 people have died in it in my lifetime, either through accidents or suicide. Some bad things have happened down on the banks of that river, too, under the bridges of Watertown. That's where the serial killer, Arthur Shawcross, raped and murdered his first two victims. A little ten-year-old boy named Jake and an eight-year-old girl named Karen Ann. At 18, I worked alone in a little gas station adjacent to the Court Street Bridge and next to a very rundown public housing building. Some people during the shift would come in and buy gas, but the vast majority of customers shuffled across from that sad building to buy scratch tickets and cigarettes. It was their little mecca of hope and relief on the days that they had money. At the end of the workday, I had to take out this long measuring pole and lower it down into the underground tanks and mark down how much gas was left in there and make sure that it squared with the readings on the pumps so we could make sure no gas had leaked into the ground. And on this one beautiful February Monday, I paused there by the tank holding that measuring pole like a staff, and I could hear the river just roaring. We'd had an uncharacteristically warm day with bright, bright sunshine, and the thick blanket of snow that had covered everything had been shrinking all day and all that water just running down into the river, so the river was high and wild and loud. There was a haze of condensation in the air. It looked kind of ghostly, but now it was sunset and the temperature was dropping fast. The streets were quiet, and people were home preparing dinner, and I finished up, got my coat, and locked up the station. 
The gas station was on one end of a block, and next to it was this vast parking lot, and beyond that was the Sears store that the parking lot belonged to. So my shortcut home involved cutting across the Sears parking lot to the back of it, going up a hill, and that would bring me up to the back of another vast parking lot, this one for Woolworths, and I would cut across that parking lot and pick up the sidewalk by Woolworths' front door and follow that the rest of the way home. As I crossed the Sears parking lot, the lights flickered on. They were those old sodium mercury lights, and they gave kind of a yellow cast. The light was reflecting off the haze of moisture in the air, and it just created an eerie effect. Things were starting to freeze again, so it was slippery, and I could see my breath. Starting up the hill, it became apparent very quickly that the snow had compressed and gotten kind of, you know, mashed potato-y and slushy during the day, and now it was starting to freeze and crunch as I walked, and I had to pay attention to where I was stepping. It wasn't super bright, and it was getting a little treacherous. About halfway up the hill, there was some landscaping, just a few evergreen bushes, like three to four feet high. And as I approached them, I heard some strange noises coming from the other side of the bushes, just a few feet away. And there was enough light coming down from the parking lot above and casting up from the one below that I could see that there was a couple there on the ground, and the man was moving on top of the woman. He was facing up the hill, and I was probably even with his knees, so I could see his ass and his back and the side of his face. And I got a good look at him. I just froze. I I was young. I didn't have a lot of exposure to sexual activity, and I was really stunned by this scene. And as I stood there looking, I realized that there was a big, hunting knife and some sort of club on the snow next to the man's right hand. I felt like if I took another step, he could hear my feet on the snow and he would be alerted to my presence. If I shouted, he might run off, but he was armed and I was too far away from safety to make a run for it. I was paralyzed, afraid to even breathe. So I just stood there for what felt like a really long time, but it was probably only a minute or two. And then he got up, and he pulled up his pants, and he grabbed his weapons, and he ran forward and away into the darkness without looking back, and he never even knew I was standing there. Almost immediately, the woman started screaming these deep, primal screams like I had never heard before. Those screams, they sounded like they contained everything bad in the world. Every hurt, every humiliation, every degradation, every desecration. But she screamed one after another, only stopping to pull in another giant breath of cold air again and again and again and I felt like the air had been sucked right out of me but I ran to her and I knelt next to her and I saw immediately that it wasn't a woman it was a girl it was a young girl I found out later she was 14 her clothes were in ribbons they'd been cut by his knife there was a contusion on her cheekbone that was already starting to discolor and swell. There was blood, but I couldn't tell where it was coming from, but the screaming. And her fingers were clenched like claws. Her hands were white and cold, and I wrapped my coat around her and tucked it in, and I tried to calm her down. I was terrified that he was going to come back and kill her, or kill us. And I knew that I had to go for help, but how could I leave her alone like that? I stood up and just looked around. 
in desperation and down at the base of the hill, I saw a couple. They had started up, but they'd heard the screams and were now backing off. I ran to the other side of the bushes and I slid and ran halfway down the hill calling out to them, hey, come on, there's been an accident here. Come and stay with her while I, while I go get help. And they just shook their heads and started backing away. And the screaming continued. And that's when I realized I recognized him. Hey, wait a minute. I recognize you from the gas station. Parliaments and Newport lights, right? Yeah. <laughs> you better come back here and stay with her because I know where you live. And if you leave her here, I'm going to tell the police you abandoned her. A lot of the people that lived in that public housing building had a iffy relationship with the police and they didn't like to be around when the police were there, but luckily these people were willing to come halfway up the hill at least and just stay there while I ran up to Woolworths. But I also wasn't sure how long they would stay with her knowing that the police were coming, so I felt added pressure to move as quickly as possible. And as I ran up that hill, I could still hear those screams. So I go running and sliding across this Woolworths parking lot and uh, burst into the door of the store. It was almost closing time there. There were no customers. There were just three women. There were two cashiers that were kind of leaning at the end of their register aisles and a third woman who I assumed was a manager or a supervisor who was standing in the doorway of an office. And they were all just chatting and watching the clock and waiting for the last couple minutes to tick by so they could lock up and go home. I kind of caught my breath and I said, there's an emergency out behind the parking lot and we need to call for the police and an ambulance. And they all kind of looked at me and I must have been a sight because... I didn't have a coat on, and I was wearing tan corduroy overalls, you know, Oshkosh, because that's what everybody wore back then. And there was mud and blood on my uh, knees, and they all kind of looked at each other, and it was like they made an instantaneous collective decision that I was yanking their chain. And the woman in the doorway said, It's against store policy to let customers use the phone. And I said, what? there's an emergency and somebody's injured. And she smiled, a very smug smile, and said, it's against store policy to allow customers to use the phone. There's a payphone in the lobby if you need to make a call. Seriously? I checked my pockets. I didn't have any change. All I had was a dollar bill. So I pull it out and I look at them. And the manager is already shaking her head. We're not going to open the register for you, honey, unless you make a purchase. So rather than carry on, I just grabbed a pack of gum, took it to one of the cashiers. She took it slowly from me and entered it into the register and took my dollar and slowly counted out the change and put it in my hand. And they're all just smugly snickering at this point. I grab the change, I go running out to the lobby, there's the sheriff's department number written right on the phone. I put the dime in and it goes right through. The payphone was completely out of order, like not even connected. I'd had enough. I went running back in, just body blocked that manager right out of her doorway and went in, grabbed the phone on her desk and called for help. And I ran back as quickly as I could, but I wasn't even halfway across that Woolworths parking lot before I could hear her screams. She never stopped. I reached the crest of the hill and started kind of sliding down, and I saw that the couple who had stayed with her had backed all the way down to the base of the hill, and as soon as they saw me, they took off. I went back over to her, I just tried to pet her hair and keep her calm, and I realized that whenever she stopped to grab a breath to scream again, I could hear the river roaring. And within a couple of moments, 
The sound of her screams were mingling with the sounds of sirens that got louder and louder as they got closer and closer. I stood up so that they could see me, and I could see the flashing blue and red lights reflecting off the road and street signs before I actually saw any vehicles. But then there they were, just streaming into that Sears parking lot. Ambulance and a fire truck and several police cars and the sheriff was there. And then all these men were pouring out of their vehicles and storming the hill. The EMTs went straight for the girl who was still screaming and clutching my coat and she wouldn't let it go. So they slid her onto the gurney and carried her away as she clutched it. And it wasn't until they got down to the bottom of the hill and put her in the back of the ambulance and shut the doors that finally the screaming could no longer reach my ears. The men were setting up Klieg lights and standing in little groups and talking to each other and taking photographs. One of them came up to me and said, did you call this in? I said, yes, I did. And he said, well, just stand here while we finish our work and then we'll take a statement. So I stood there alone and tried to stay warm as the temperature continued to drop. And eventually, they picked up all their gear and one by one, they walked down to the hill and put away their stuff and got in their vehicles and drove away. And they left me there at the crime scene. I don't know how much of what I was feeling was shock or just being cold, but I couldn't stop shaking. My pants were wet from kneeling in the snow and I had no coat. It was probably 15 degrees and I started walking home. About halfway there, I had to pass the police station and I was getting more and more upset. The man who had committed the crime was still somewhere out there and he could have been watching for all I knew. Plus, I was freezing to death. So I stopped at the police station and I went up to the guy behind the desk. He just stared at me and I said, I just came from that crime scene. I'm really cold and I'm upset and I'd like to call a roommate to give me a ride home. And he just pushed back from the desk on his rolling office chair and said, Hey, Sarge, I think I got your witness. And a couple of seconds later, this this guy comes running from the back room and he goes, You were supposed to give a statement. Have you given your statement? I said, No, I was just left at the crime scene. Everybody left. He said, Well, get in here and give a statement. So he pulls me in and I sit down and I give my statement, at the end of which I insisted on using the phone. And I called a roommate to come and get me and take me home. When I got back home, my mother and oldest brother were there. They had been home, and when the emergency call came over their scanner, saying that a young woman had been attacked on the hill between the Sears parking lot and the Woolworths parking lot, which is exactly where my mother knew that I would be at that time of the night. So they were convinced that I was the one who had been attacked, and they had been calling the hospital and calling the police, and they could only get confirmation that something had happened. They couldn't get an ID. I felt a little funny about them being there because we did not have a good relationship, but they were offering consolation, and at that moment, that was what I really needed. So we all sat down, and I told them exactly what had happened. At the end, my mother, who seemed to be getting more and more agitated, said, well, you need to go to the press. I said, why, why do I need to go to the press? And she said, because the women of this town need to know that this threat is out there. And I said, well, what about the threat to my safety? This rapist doesn't know that there was a witness. If I go to the press, he's going to know somebody was there. So maybe we should wait and let the police do their job a little bit first. Well, I think that's selfish, and you should go right to the press and let the women of this town know what has happened. And I said, you know what? I've had a really crappy day, and I don't want to do that right now. She kind of huffed out, and they left. 
I was exhausted, so I just collapsed in bed. But I was awakened early in the morning by pounding on the front door. I threw on some clothes, went downstairs, opened the door, and it's a TV crew. They've got a camera trained on me and a reporter sticking a microphone in my face, saying, would you like to make a statement about what happened last night? Can you tell us what you saw? And I said, how do you know to come here? And she said, it's in the paper. And I looked, and there's the morning paper on the front porch, and I pick it up and go inside, and there's the whole story with every detail that I had told my mother, everything, including what happened with the ladies at Woolworth's, because she had left my house and gone straight to the press. I didn't have to be worried for too long about being a target of the rapist, because although the police weren't able to talk to that young woman right away because she was too distraught and hysterical, after they treated her injuries and sedated her, she was able to give a very detailed description of the man, and the police knew immediately who it was. And they went out and they picked up Francis Sheltray hanging out on the public square right up the street from where the incident occurred and they put a big picture of him in the paper. I was horrified at how much he looked like Charles Manson. And Francis had a long history, and in the article that accompanied the picture, they talked about his history of committing these types of crimes, of knife attacks and sexual assaults on children, young women in particular. It took six months for this case to come up before the grand jury, and during those months, I was filled with anxiety. The ladies of Woolworths didn't like the bad press they got, so they came forward to say that my story was a complete fabrication, and that what actually had happened was I had come in so distraught and hysterical that they couldn't understand what I was saying, so they called the police for me, and then went out and aided the girl, which started a whole barrage of letters to the editor of the local paper, most of which came to my defense, although some sided with the lying wenches of Woolworths. During those months of waiting for trial, I had nightmares and I would see dark shapes in my room and be completely convinced that somebody was there in the dark to kill me. I went back to the Court Street Bridge at one point during that time and looked down into the water. It had given me so much pleasure before, but now it did the opposite. The roar of the water didn't soothe me anymore because I couldn't separate it from the sound of her screams. And those screams had grabbed me in the gut because they said everything, everything that I was not able to say. After a lifetime of being the go-to target of my gleefully sadistic oldest brother in a household where I went to my parents and told them that I was being hurt and their reaction to the horrible, violent degradations that I was constantly enduring was, he's just trying to get a reaction out of you. Just ignore him and he'll stop. But he didn't stop. So all that that wonderful advice left me with as a young woman was a complete lack of knowledge about personal boundaries, an inability to say no to men, and a tendency to freeze in the face of violence or danger to the point where I was able to stand in silence while a child was raped a few feet away from me. And I'll tell you, that was the only time I ever looked off that bridge and wondered what it would feel like to jump off the edge. Would it be horrible and painful, or would you be so inundated with feelings of different kinds from all of your senses, the coldness of the water and your body hitting the rocks and the deafening sound of the water just sucking you in, Would you just be so distracted that it would be over before you knew it and all the pain would be gone? 
By the time I was summoned to appear before the grand jury, I had already left Watertown and moved to Boston to go to college. I had to be flown back. They led me into the courtroom and took me up to the witness stand, and I sat down and I looked out, and there was the defense table across from me with Francis Sheltray in the first seat staring at me with menace in his eyes. His defense attorney was kind of sitting, leaning on the front of the table, facing me, blocking a man who sat behind him next to Francis. The defense attorney welcomed me and told me that my visit there today would probably be very brief and thanked me for coming such a long distance. And then he stepped aside and revealed the man behind him and said to me, Miss Long, can you swear under oath that this is not the man you saw that night? And who I saw there was another man that bore a striking resemblance to Francis Sheltray. He had the same brown shirt. He had the same body size and shape. He had the same haircut and hair color. He had the same facial hair. But while Francis Sheltray was sitting there with his hands crossed on the table, staring at me with steely, cruel eyes, the other man was kind of rolling his eyes and looking around the room and up at the ceiling and he was fumbling with his fingers in front of his mouth and he was rocking a little bit in his seat. I had no idea what was going on but I felt confident that I knew which man it was but they did look an awful lot alike so I started to make an explanation and the defense attorney stopped me and he said Miss Long this is a simple yes or no question. All I want to hear is yes or no. Can you swear under oath that this is not the man you saw in the dark six months ago from behind? Aside from seeing Francis Sheltray in person that night, I had seen his picture in the paper and I had read his lengthy criminal history filled with crimes against children and other rapes. But of course, those things couldn't be revealed to the people of the grand jury. And again, I started to make an explanation, and he shut me down with a little less patience this time. And he said, Miss Long, I want to hear yes or no out of your mouth. Can you, under oath, tell me that this was not the man that you saw? Looking at the two men, I could tell through cues and clues that were both subtle and obvious which one was Francis Sheltray. And I could look at them and tell which one was the hardened criminal. But the way the question was worded, I could only go by appearance. And if I did that, then no, I could not swear that the man on the right was not the man I saw that night. And so I said the only thing that I could say. I said no. That was all they asked me. I was ushered out. And Francis Sheltray left that courtroom that day a free man. I heard later that there were some people who were unhappy about what I'd said, like the mother of the victim. But what they didn't understand is that I still believed wholeheartedly in justice. I wanted and expected justice for that girl on the hill and her deep, deep trauma. I expected justice for myself, too, for the years of torture and trauma that I experienced at the hands of my brother. I didn't think it was my role to convict Francis Sheltray. I thought it was my duty to play my small part to tell the truth, and the machine of justice would turn like a fine Swiss watch, and these abusers would be shamed and punished. And of course I believed that. Of course I believed it. I had been conditioned practically since birth. It was the first thing I learned about in church, about good and bad, and who goes to heaven and who gets punished forever. And the second I entered kindergarten, they had me pledging it every day. One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. With my little hand on my heart. But that's not what happened. What happened was, Francis Sheltray got a defense attorney 
who had a Jones about never losing a case. And he went out and he found a group home resident with an intellectual disability who bore a resemblance to Sheltray. And he dressed him up like him and got him to confess to the crime, even though he was accounted for when it happened and he knew none of the details. That's how easily justice is circumvented. And two months later, I went back to Watertown again for Thanksgiving. And I went to the grocery store with my mother to get food for Thanksgiving dinner. And in the lobby of the grocery store, there was a play area for children. There were some horses. You could put a quarter in and they would rock. And there was a little train. And there was an airplane that would make a sound like a jet. And there, sitting on a white horse, watching the children, was Francis Sheltray. And he saw me when I came in. And he smiled at me with that sadistic little smile that I recognized so well from my childhood. And he got up off that horse, and he followed me up and down the aisles until I left. There wasn't going to be justice for me. Or for the girl whose name I never learned, the girl on the hill. There wasn't even meaningful justice for the women who died after that Watertown serial killer, Arthur Shawcross, after the city fathers of Watertown let him out of jail and kicked him out of Jefferson County after he killed those two children up there so that he could relocate to Rochester and kill 11 women on the banks of the Genesee River. The problem with being so invested in this idea of justice for all is that when you're victimized and you don't get justice, then you're on the wrong side of an immutable equation. And the message you get is what happened to you doesn't matter. You don't matter. And it's just another form of control. You know, I think if you want to jumpstart your healing, the first thing you have to do is let go of this fairy tale about justice for all. We live in a country where there are 400,000 unprocessed rape kits. In a country where people of color can be shot by the police and no one's held accountable. A couple years ago, I googled Francis Sheltray, and I got a hit. He was on a website for people who had died of lung cancer. And he'd been put on there by a daughter. And his daughter had written, "Uh, Rest in peace, Daddy. I'll always love you. I miss you every day. I thought, wow. What did she see when she looked at her father? Did she watch him cut and wound his way through the city of Watertown, New York? Or was she standing up on a bridge and observing him so far from a distance that she was removed from the violence and the fear and all she could see was the beauty and the love that they shared with each other? He was loved. And that leads me to believe that he didn't define himself by the worst thing he ever did you know what? He was on the right side of the equation for that crime. You know, if people who commit crimes don't have to define themselves by the worst thing they ever did, maybe victims don't have to define themselves by the worst thing that ever happened to them. And I think not. I think we need to create our own justice and define ourselves outside of that. And maybe the first step is to acknowledge each other's pain because it doesn't get acknowledged the way we're trained that it will be. So, to the girl on the hill, to all the girls on all the hills, and the boys under the bridges, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. I'm sorry for the ugliness in this life. I hope you find beauty because there is so much beauty to be had, to be seen and felt and tasted and heard. And you're part of that. We're all part of it. And as much as anyone else, 
You do matter. You do matter. is all for this week's episode folks this is sarah long hendershot's band the jane mutiny you can find them on the music sharing site reverb nation just look up the jane mutiny there and you can find sarah long hendershot on facebook we always recommend you listen uh with earphones or earbuds and if you were you probably noticed a lot going on in the audio editing of that story a fantastic job by our audio editor, John LaSala, on that one. That story is a good one to talk about, you know, with friends, family. You know, there, there's always the Risk Podcast Fans discussion group on Facebook uh, or other places. There's the comments section on the listen pages at our site. And there's always Twitter and other places. But yeah, if you have feelings about that story, share it. Share the story and share your feelings because it's important, especially right now, to be talking about just these very things. Now, time is running out to pitch us for three big shows that we're doing at the end of the year. In October, of course, we have our Scary Stories shows in New York and Los Angeles, but we're also looking for scary story pitches from people all over the world, you know, to record radio-style stories for our Halloween episodes. So send those to us at pitches at show.com Or in November, we're doing our very special body slash risk storytelling show collaboration we're going to have a big show at the bell house in november in brooklyn and that's going to be all kinky stories so if you have a story of sexual adventures or strange romances or kinky crossing of boundaries whatever pitch us those stories at pitches at risk-show.com and then finally in december we have our winter holidays shows We need those kinds of stories, too, from people all over the world, but especially in New York and Los Angeles for those live shows. So to learn more, just go to the submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions and pitch us your scary stories, your winter holiday stories, and your kinky stories for that show we're doing at the Bell House in November. And if you live anywhere near Denver, Colorado, you have to come out to our October 4th show at the Bluebird Theater. These stories are fantastic. We're workshopping them right now. This is going to be a very memorable evening. So come on out, everyone in and around Denver, Colorado, on October 4th at the Bluebird Theater. And then after that, on October 20th, we're in Los Angeles again at the Bootleg Theater doing our Scary Stories show. On October 25th, we're back at Caveat 
in New York City for a Scary Stories show. And, um, yeah, like I was saying, there's that big November 14th show at the Bell House in Brooklyn. The theme that night is pervert, but, of course, we're very loose about our our theme. So uh, any kind of kinky stories you might want to pitch us for that Bell House show on November 14th, go ahead and do it. Once again, that's at wristdashshow.com slash submissions. And don't forget, we also teach storytelling at thestorystudio.org. That's one-on-one training over Skype, in-person workshops in Los Angeles, Minneapolis, and New York, our video courses that you can download and take in your own time, and our corporate workshops that we teach to, you know, companies like Google and Pfizer and Citibank. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, (laughs) today's the day. Take a risk.